Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. And welcome back to Greenwashed on RCR with Don and Jaspreet. Um, hope you've had a great weekend, but uh, it's uh, it's time to have some good weather in the south, isn't it, Jaspreet? Well, yes, it sure is. Pretty blustery out here. That's pretty blustery. But anyway, that's what farming is all about. And so a couple of weeks ago, just after the election, we had a program where uh, we had myself and three other past national presidents of Fed Farmers on. We couldn't get Wayne Langford, the current uh, incumbent president. And so today we're following up with Richard McIntyre, the dairy chair uh, for Fed Farmers and a national board member who is also responsible responsible for immigration and labour, employment relations, animal welfare, domestic commerce and competition, firearms and rural policing. And um, welcome, Richard. We do intend to have you on mainly around the commerce and competition stuff, but there's a whole lot of stuff going on in feds. Do you want to give us a bit of an update on, on yourself, where you've come from? You've had a varied career leading into feds. I know that um, being Deputy Chair of Fish and Game, for instance, that's a bit of a contrast for feds. <laughs> yes, hey, thank you very much for having me on the show, Don. Um, much appreciated. So I'm a herd-owning sheep milker in the Horafanua, um, just south of Foxen. Um, I've worked my way up alongside my, my wife and, and kids um, to get to this position through variable order share milking. Um, I started in feds um, 10 years ago and, and it became the the share milker chair, national share milker chair, um, having started off in the Manawatu Rangitiki and um, then two years ago became the national dairy chair, um, which was quite cool. Sort of um, working alongside that, um, you know, I think like a lot of farmers, um, I was increasingly frustrated with um, a lot of the narratives that fish and game were pushing, but um, at the same time, a hugely passionate game bird hunter and a a relatively uncoordinated fire fisherman as well, to be fair. Um, and so I decided that the best thing for me to do um, was to actually put my name forwards and see if I could get on the Fishing Game Council and actually do something about it. Um, there's a saying that, that I like to use a fair bit, that if you're not if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And I think we're very much suffering from that in, in that respect because a lot of, a lot of Fishing Game Councillors that I knew already um, were good people, um, but they didn't understand us very well and we probably didn't understand them very well. So I put my name forward, I think it was five or six years ago now, um, and was lucky enough get, to get elected to the Wellington um, Fishing Game Council. And um, yeah, a couple of years later, um, found myself on the Fishing Game New Zealand Council as well as the Wellington appointee. And then um, I spent about a year as um, the deputy chair of Fishing Game New Zealand, um, which was which was really cool. And I just stepped down when I took over um, the role as um, as Federated Farmers National Dairy Chair, just because uh, I, there are a few too many um, time commitments and that sort of thing. But yeah, it's it's been very interesting actually understanding both sides and getting to know everyone and trying to, I guess, create some win-win situations where we can. And so what I learned in my time in Fed Farmers was, yeah, you go in with a lot of expectation privately and you're trying to, you're going to make a big difference on a variety of things, but you generally have a key subject. But what I've noted you do very soon after you get into the Federation machine is you all of a sudden um, have your wings spread because you actually have to be over a whole lot more stuff. And I'm I'm impressed by your list of portfolios because they are critical uh, portfolios, especially the one on um, competition and, uh, you know, domestic sort of 
policy settings around you know the banking sector for instance and so just if we can fast forward because we've only got perhaps half an hour um we'll have you back of course one day i hope um is what's farming like at the moment it seems to me everything we're reading is a bit a bit doomsdayish um but is there any light on the horizon Look, you know, farming is certainly very challenging at the moment. You know, we have, um, I, I guess, you know, everyone's suffering from inflation at the moment, but um, farmers have been suffering from 14 to 17% inflation over the last few years. So their farm working expenses have gone up hugely, we, you know, whereas the, the rest of the country is, you know, around the 7% mark. Um, at the same time, we've got commodity prices that have been falling over the last year or so. You know, the, the dairy price has dropped and certainly um, sheep and beef returns are very challenging at the moment as well. Um, if you add to that the um, the various climatic events that we've had, you know, obviously the, the cyclones earlier on in the year have um, have really challenged certain farming regions in that respect. And then we've got um, what was essentially this never-ending um, <laughs> never-ending line of poorly thought through regulation that we've had coming across us um, for the last probably six years. And, you know, we can argue about the direction of travel, but the biggest issue was the fact that it was pushed on farmers too fast for us to make any changes, you know, in a meaningful way. And also um, in a way that that created significant unintended consequences. So even if the desired outcome was achieved, there was so much collateral damage or unnecessarily unnecessary wastage, I suppose, created that it was always going to be um, be a real challenge for farmers to deal with. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, uh, if it had been in private business um, doing the same um, sort of uh, management of, of their fiscal or their fiscal management, that all be broke. That all be broke. No business, no banker would leave a lend to uh, to a system that that farmers have had to endure, uh, forced on them by government. I mean, so government actually, uh, I look at it this way, Richard. I know I didn't, that didn't make much sense. I look at it this way: that um, the way the country has been managed the last six years, especially, has has no similar. There's hardly a time in history where it could have been managed more more poorly. Um, and the damage it's done is coming right inside the farm gate on steroids. And was that intentional, do you think? Or uh, so by design, or or was it just accidental? Because this seems like it is you use the word unprecedented often in, in media these days. It is unprecedented. I lived through the 80s. This strikes me as far worse stewardship by a government now i know you're not gonna you're not gonna badmouth um people individually um but but you surely we've seen this stuff before but never quite like this is what i'm getting at well you agree the last the last few years have, have been very unprecedented to use your term um look i <laughs> I, I would hesitate to say that there were bad intentions towards agriculture in terms of, you know, that all this is on purpose and, and by design. But I, I do think there was a lack of desire to actually understand um, the all of the consequences of, of what was being um, being in, in, inflicted upon farmers, I, I suppose, in that respect. And I know... I know from a you know obviously with Fed, within feds we we do a lot of um you know consultation um or heavily involved in the consultation process and i remember at one point thinking jeepers is it even worth us um submitting on this because 
they're just not they don't listen um you know and we can talk about all the unintended consequences and all that sort of stuff and hey why don't you do this yes it's a slightly slower but it's gonna there's gonna be far less collateral damage and and it was a real struggle to um, you know we, we basically wouldn't get listened to at all and that was a real challenge in that respect well and and you know on that front i've always had an issue with um the federations and even you know while i was there and even before and after we sort of dignify government uh, and local government output by even submitting and it does come a time when i actually agree richard you have to almost 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 draw a line in the sand and saying i'm not submitting on any more of this because all we're doing is dignifying a bad yeah. process uh, but then you get vilified for not being there because your members want you to be um, doing this sort of stuff so it is a it is a, a fine line and let's get on to the commercial stuff with banking i mean i think you've got a fantastic um policy I, boss there in terms of nick clark so you know good advice is coming through your system i mean he was around when i was there so nick's a stalwart for the organization and very very solid on this stuff he knows sort of 20 plus years of history of of the lobbying we've done what's changed and sorry jasper i know you have no. a question to come in what's changed in uh in recent years that have made it almost looks like history repeating itself uh we went through the gfc in 2007 8 9 and nick was there helping me out on it then um here we are in 2023 similar stuff banks seem to be gouging yeah look it's a it's a really interesting one um you know we, where this has become interesting for us is you know obviously interest rates have gone up significantly over the last wee while and in in a way that's been very unexpected so no one's really built that into their um feasibility um you know studies that they were you know whether it was buying a house or buying a farm or anything like that but what what's what's really interested farmers or concerned farmers is that you know a lot of residential mortgages you know they're talking sort of seven percent or something like that whereas um rural rural mortgages have been more like nine percent and there's so there's been a big a big um gap between the two um and then if you if you look at the bank's margins that they're actually making um over the last sort of three three or four years um the bank's margins on rural lending have increased while while their residential lending margins have decreased or while they're making um record-breaking profits um you know so yep. but that really piqued our interest in that respect hmm. yep Richard, uh, Don and I had both read this article, uh, this headline that Farmers Lobby Group, referring to Fed's once rural banking probe, suggests banks' move towards net zero could reduce competition in agriculture yeah. banking. And for listeners, what we are speaking about here is that uh, most of the main banks have signed up to the NZBA, which is a net zero banking alliance, which is convened by the United Nations. And uh, they're all you know, in a way, as Richard, your article seemed to suggest, it's anti-competitive, right? And no one else seems to have picked up on that. And I am really interested. What do you think? What, what, how can we, how badly are we stuck here? What, what is the possibility of, what are we looking at soon? Because I look at Holland, I look at how Rabobank downgraded its entire portfolio of rural lending. Yeah, look, you know, we're we're very concerned by this. Um, you know, fundamentally, Fed's position is that we we do prefer, um, you know, the market to lead change. You know, rather than than you know, I guess heavy-handed government regulation, but at the same time, 
we want the market to be able to do that in a competitive manner so that um, if they choose to make a change, um, then they their customers will essentially choose to go with them or not. Where, where there's a problem here is where where this all these banks have got together, like you say, in this United Nations forum, and set these targets for emissions reduction. You know, as and and this is you know in New Zealand context going to apply to agriculture, and so um, farmers actually won't have a choice. Um, they will be inflicting upon this um, in various form, inflicting this upon farmers in various forms. Um, without giving farmers or, or any other customers realistically the option of going to a different bank because they have all made this decision. Um, and and that, that, to me, is very anti-competitive. And, and you know, I, I do think the Commerce Commission do need to have a very good look into it and see if there are any issues there. And then to add to it, and I'll show my bias here, I'm a dairy farmer, you're, you're the dairy chair. And uh, we are talking about those farmers right now being penalized, whose carbon footprint is less than 30% of the world's average and 30% lower than our counterparts in you know Europe and the North America. You said, Richard, at the beginning that you know the rate at which the change has been coming for us is uh, we can't manage it. But my question to that is, do we even have, have to? It's like telling a top uh, a player at the peak of the game, an Olympic athlete or something, do more, do better. But we are already at the top of our game here. Yeah, but but to stay the same is to go backwards because everyone's yeah. evolving. You know, we're at the point now where um, dairy farms in the states, um, some of the the bigger, more efficient ones are actually actually have a lower footprint than ours, um, and they're uh -huh. more economic than ours as well. And so we need to just like we have over the last 20, 30 years um, evolved. We need to keep doing that um, in order to stay ahead of everyone else. So I I certainly am not um, a proponent of of staying the same. I mm. think we need to keep on always trying to get more, get get better and and be more efficient in what we do. Um, the the issue is as well though when we have these targets set um, by others, um, I think there's a little bit of a problem in that respect, and it's certainly very uncomfortable from a farming point of view. Then I bring something else into it, Richard. When I came to New Zealand in 2009, started farming, I still remember my first paycheck was $13.25 an hour. That was the minimum wage at that point, and that's what I had started. Now, a few years ago, 2017, I'd say, the government brought in the median wage, you know, at which migrants need to be employed. Now, my husband and I, we contract milking 1,200 cows over two adjoining farms, pretty much one farm, a long, narrow farm, the two cow sheds. Now, the minimum wage has gone up to pretty much, you know, I can call it rounded off to $30. Do U.S. farmers face similar legislated pressures? Are they paying their staff $30 an hour? And you're saying, you know, they're still more economic. We have had this whole regime of this being foisted upon us by the regulator, by the machinery. Obviously, we are, we're going to be feeling the pain here sooner or later for someone you know, I, I know of contract milkers, large-scale contract milkers who need to hire staff who are going back on wages. And, you know, there might come a stage where someone like us might join their ranks because it is no longer possible to make ends meet. Oh, you're exactly right. You know, there there are so many challenges in that respect. You know, you're talking about, um, you know, we're talking about contract milkers, you know, the biggest cost is actually labor. And mm -hmm. so have um, labor costs go up as much as they have over the last few years, um, you know, partially because of the border closure, closures and, and government settings in that respect, um, you know, while at the same time being expected to meet um, a, you know, a contract rate that is signed up to a couple of years previously with, you know, an, an expected um, labor rate that's now changed hugely, you know, it's, it's a big problem. And it's something that the contract milking 
sector is going to really have to deal with in terms of the ability to renegotiate contracts when required. And hopefully, from what I can gather, a lot of farm owners have actually stepped in and supported some contract milkers, understanding that their costs have gone up hugely. And if they want to keep good people in the industry, they've actually got to support them because who else is going to run their farms for them? But then there's not a lot left over, is there, Don, for, you know, environmental endeavours? Well, it never has been, uh, really. Everyone's having a, 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 you know, you have good and bad years in farming, and in the good years, you're generally paying debt uh, and doing capital replacement and stuff like that, and you've all done your environmental enhancement and the stuff that you, you know, the right thing to do. But the, the biggest cost, of course, Jasper, and you know this, um, aside from interest and fertiliser, two biggies, are uh, the uh, un- you know the the non-tradables, the uh, the local and central government costs, and they're the ones uh, eating us up. I mean, it was only a couple of years ago the council down here had a thirty percent general rate increase. Uh, I mean, how can anyone ever justify that when inflation was running at three percent? Only local and central government can seemingly justify that. So. Yeah, I think, Richard, you face the same challenges today that I faced in my time. And Owen, who was on our show a couple of weeks ago, Owen Jennings faced a way back in the 80s. Um, everybody's um, looking for their piece of action out of farming as well. Uh, some of it certainly isn't market driven. And yet we're told often that the other marketplace is desiring X, Y, Z. Uh, no, this is self-interest, in my opinion, by many, many employees in the state sector. But that aside, I want to go right back because there's something that concerned me in a um, in this press statement about the banking and the dominance of the big five. And it was the squeeze that appeared to happen in 2021. Uh, the SBS, the South and Building Society uh, CEO at the time said um, he just didn't want to be in the rural lending space uh, and nor did Kiwi Bank uh, and one other bank from memory um, because of how awkward it was for them has and i'm not sure if i read or found anything since to say that those little banks are getting a fair shake of the stick when it comes to rural lending is it still too hard and dominated well i know it's dominated by the big five but is it still too hard for the little little guys to get into rural banking well that's part of what we want to um, establish um from this inquiry that we're we're mm. looking um, that we're asking for, sorry, um, because we do not, we don't think there's enough competition. We think it's very interesting that the likes of Kiwi Bank um, have decided they don't want to be in the rural space, mm-hmm. um, and we, yeah, we want to understand that far better because you know having having more competition will certainly help to drive um, lower interest rates or lower margins, I suppose, for the banks in that respect. Mm. So, are you confident this next administration will pick up this uh, as one of the? The key things for, I, I know the farmer organisation had some uh, manifesto type document put out, uh, is that the expectation that uh, whatever this next coalition will be, we'll pick it up and and have a look? So so from our discussions with them, no one said that they think it's a bad idea, um, which is which is a positive to begin with. But um, at, the, at this point, we haven't been able to get them to to commit to it, um, or we couldn't get them to commit to a pre-election, I should say. So I'm very hopeful we'll be able to get it um, to happen. It's just um, just a matter of keeping the pressure up um, on on the new coalition um, once it's formed in order to get it across the line. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, look, there's a, there's... another thing. I'd, I'd if I may interrupt here. I've been 
looking at that the Reserve Bank is expecting that there might be default here and default to increase in the rural space. Their full press release will be out, uh, I think, in a couple of days. But right now, there's just been a preview in a couple of headlines. They keep telling us, I mean, our industry bodies, be it Dairy NZ, LIC, Fonter, and so on, they keep telling us there's a market premium. That's what New Zealand is aiming for. Our commodity prices are falling. And yet, if I look at uh, the IMDs released yesterday, the International Sustainable Daily Trade Index, New Zealand, for the second year in a row, has topped it out of over 100 countries because our environmental credentials are impeccable. When will we see this mythical premium that is supposed to be coming and, you know, getting us all uh, laughing all the way to the bank? <laughs> yeah, Chief, I'd love to have a crystal ball, crystal ball and be able to answer that question properly. Look, I, I've asked a few times, um, you know, well, Fonterra's, you know, talking about their scope through emissions targets um, that are going to be released next month and, and all their various um, things that they are interested in within their cooperative difference. And that, you know, if, if we're doing all of this, um, you know, as a Fonterra supplier, I should say, um, and the other independent processes aren't as interested in this. You know, at what point are we actually going to see a divergence between Fonterra's milk price and the independent processes? And um, and I haven't really received a proper answer for that yet. Um, it seems to be more around the idea that it it, it provides um, some surety of being able to sell a product into the future as the world becomes more and more interested in these things. But um, yeah, I, I don't know where this mythical extra money is actually coming from, and I'd really love to see it because it's, there's certainly a cost to all this change that you know that, that farmers are embarking upon. Um, so it'd be nice to be properly rewarded for it. Well, we're often told the catch cry was value add. Uh, everything's value add. And I always used to have the refrain, well, how about some value capture that comes back inside the farm gate? Because plenty of other people seem to be getting their share of the pie. And uh, on the on the way through, and I yeah, the other side of it is, uh, and I, it's a cruel world. But uh, farmers are just the residue receiver. That's it. You're the residue of um, receiver of the whole supply chain. That's it. So anything that adds costs uh, in in between uh, you and the consumer, uh, it's after everybody else has been paid. And and you know it's it's very convenient for um, perhaps let's say a supermarket shopper to blame the farmer. Um, they don't really often think of what's gone in between the farm and that supermarket shelf. So maybe there's the disconnect that we've got to constantly um, have in front of people. But hey, look, let's go back to some other stuff. Um, I think we need to put this all in perspective. New Zealand um, agriculture sector, the primary sector, uh, is 11% of all bank lending in this country. And, and within that sector, the dairy sector uh, is dominant it takes about 60 percent of that um with sheep and beef the second largest at 25 percent we're actually small bickies compared to the total pie of lending in this country which is to business and housing it seems odd that the lifeblood of the economy is the one that gets screwed over the most in terms of premiums for interest as opposed to those that perhaps aren't taking quite the same level of risk. They haven't got climatic risk. They haven't got marketplace risk. They haven't got transport risk. Yeah, it's how, how can we counter this? I mean, I remember in 2008 uh, or might have been 2009, I can't remember, uh, Richard, that the Reserve Bank governor of the time told federated farmers to go out and jawbone down interest rates because we were being screwed. And we did. 
and uh, we we encouraged interest rates to come down quicker than they may have otherwise. Uh, is that and is that what Feds may start doing? Look, we're certainly hoping to to shine a bit of bit of light onto what, you know what's happening in the real banking space. You know, this is this is all behind our call for an inquiry in that respect, so that mm. we can we can understand why there is that difference in interest rates. Um, and, you know, some of it may be banks um, taking excessive profits off um, off you know, rural businesses so that they can subsidise um, the rural, or sorry, the, the residential market. Um, but, you know, some of it might be regulation. I know that the Reserve Bank um, a few years back um, put something in place where, um, you know, the, the rural market needed to be able to withstand uh, one in, I think it's 200-year um, financial crisis. Um, and so banks have to um, hold more money in reserves when they lend it to, to rural businesses um, versus residential. So we've got to look at all that regulation as well and say, look, is this is this fit for purpose? Is it achieving what it needs to achieve in that respect, or could we scale it back a bit and um, and and provide a better deal for farmers in that respect as well? Yeah, look, and I I agree with all that. I mean, it, each country is different, but the way I and I think you've grasped this uh, and presented it earlier in this discussion that New Zealand is already New Zealand farmers are at the at the cutting edge of efficient farm production in the world. Um, there's a point where you can't get blood out of a stone, and uh, and 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 so people have to be mindful of that. On the other side of it, uh, if you think about it, the housing market in New Zealand—not all of it, but a fair chunk of it—has got the backstop called a welfare system. You know, a large amount of New Zealand uh, tenancies, uh, rental tenancies, have their have their uh, renters subsidised by taxpayers. So it's basically underpinning the marketplace for rent, uh, for housing, and, and in effect, the the interest rates that th- those um, landlords have to perhaps borrow at. So look, it's, it's a vexed issue, but the only way you can um, beat this sort of stuff is with the constant pressure, the constant water on the stone dripping away, and uh, that's what Feds has to do. There's not much else. You're, you're doing good work, Richard. Oh, thank you. I think there's a saying in Fed speak, be the dripping voice of reason. So <laughs> hopefully we're doing that. Yeah. So before we go, one other thing I'd like to talk about is how's uh, you're you're into policing and, and rural crime and stuff. There's a there's a massive problem with that. Uh since my time 14 years ago, it was bad enough, but it seems to me that it's grown like topsy, uh, where there's less policing and more crime, uh, more drug-addled people in the communities, um, and just people with lack of respect for the property of others. What's what's uh, your your angle now? What can we do to um, perhaps take the edge off this stuff? Because crimes aren't going away. Uh, it's a matter of what us being more self-reliant. Yeah, look, it's it's an interesting one. You know, I think we've got quite a few uh, adverse societal uh, th- things happening at the moment that have sort of come together to cause it. You know, it's, a, it's there's always an irony to me. You know, after March fifteenth, we changed our gun laws, and you know, um, licensed firearms owners handed in certain weapons, etc. But we never targeted the gangs um, to get their firearms off them, and we we're told that it was all with a view to making us as a society safer. You know, we've seen more gun crime since. Um, which is a real concern, and it says to me it's more about the the people than it is about the the firearms and that sort of thing. But look, you know, fundamentally, we do need to resource our, our police better. You know, when I 
when I advocate for um, for farmers to get a better deal from policing, you know, what I'm very clear about is that I'm not trying to take police resources away from um, from urban areas because they need them as much as us, if not more. So we probably need to resource the the you know the police far better in the first place. And we need you know realistically, once people do get caught, we need to do you know they need to be punished. And we're probably not seeing enough of that either at this point in time. You know, there are quite a few really cool initiatives that we do have going on in conjunction with the police. You know particularly to try and get better reporting of crimes or suspicious activity because the police can't can't justify committing resources to certain areas and you know certain rural areas unless they've got the case of well x number of crimes or, or suspicious activity has been reported here therefore we'll um we, we'll um send those resources that way and so farmers can report these crimes far better there's actually an app that's being piloted at the moment but obviously there's um the the police number that can be called as well but really encouraging farmers just to actually report, over-report things essentially. You know, obviously no, I'm not saying make stuff up, but, you know, any, any little thing that you normally would say, well, the police won't do anything about it, report it so that we can justify getting better resources out our way in order to stop this crime. Well, look, I applaud anything that can improve um, the, the response time as well. I've, I've had some problems and getting to the right person quickly enough was really difficult um and in fact if i didn't have friends in in uh, high places i suppose i wouldn't have got there nearly as quickly as i did uh, uh but neighborhood watch is that still something you promote in the rural areas are you still in, in sort of um pushing that sort of line where yeah, well, where na- neighbors help neighbors yeah, look, it's it's all part of that keeping an eye on things. So you're de- definitely promoting that, you know, especially on on quieter rural roads. You know, neighbours keeping an eye on what vehicles are going up and down the road and that. And this this um, crime reporting app um, that was piloted in Canterbury and it's about to go out into some other regions as well. Um, that's exactly what that's about, so that you don't have to you know wait online on you know on on the phone to report something. Right. You can just right. say. Car um, license plate, blah blah blah, went past at this time. Looked a bit suspicious, and it's all there. And if anything comes from it, the police have all that information already. Fantastic. Look, uh, we might get you back to talk about that when it becomes a bit more widely uh, available. Uh, in the meantime, I have serious concerns about surveillance of cities. Uh, the way that there seems to be blanket surveillance of every person, whether you like it or not, you're under surveillance. Uh, and even in downtown Invercargill, that's going to happen at a massive cost. But I have no problem with um, locals uh, keeping their eyes and ears open um, and reporting stuff that's that's not right because, gee, isolation brings some um, brings some problems when you've got rural crime and crims entering your property uninvited. Uh, well, no crims invited, but uninvited people come into your property. It's it's a big and it's a big, it's as I know there's other types of uh, types of violations on 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 people and persons but having had it done to me uh, a couple of years on i still uh, am not uh, over what happened and the reminders come every day when you go into your workshop and you look for that one thing that you haven't used for a couple of years and it's not there and you think, damn, they got that too. <laughs> so, so look, I uh, applaud any initiative. Rural security is big for uh, for uh, um, property right um, uh, retention is fundamental for me. And the fact that we've lost this sort of um, uh, what's mine is mine 
and nobody else's um, ethos is a worry to me. But um, hey, we could go on on that for a long time. We started this whole discussion on economics and um, and marketing and things like that. And that's perhaps, uh, sorry to divert off that. We'll get you back, Richard, if we can. We said we'd take half an hour of your time. You're jet lagged. You look fresh as a daisy. It hasn't really a uh, week on. You're, you're looking pretty good. So we'll... we'll um, um, Thank you now for uh, your your input here today, and hopefully, as I said, get you back in the near future. You speak really well, and you know your subjects perfectly, so fantastic. Hey, look, thanks very much, Don, and just very, of yeah, really enjoyed the time, um, and be happy to come on again sometime. Thank you. Just waiting for the Reserve Bank report to be out next week, Richard. You might be back sooner than you think. Have a good <laughs> one. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Cheers, guys. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio.